You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History, and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Carla Lessing from NUI Galway. Her paper was entitled Wild Irish and Miserable Finns, 16th and 17th Century Perceptions of the Inhabitants of Ireland and Finland in Comparison. In his 2004 Tangshun E lectures held in Hong Kong, the German philosopher Bernhard Waldenfels explained that perceiving is more than acts of observation. It arises with an event of attention which is aroused and provoked by what strikes us. Similarly with actions, quote, they start from situations which offer something which attracts or repels us, which looks frightening or tempting. Our actions are more staged than produced, running through phases of hesitation and rehearsals. Memory functions in a similar way. We only keep in mind what what hurts us, and our spontaneous memory follows our desire and not our will. In a certain sense, we are overcome by our past before taking it up." Following Waldenfels' definition of perceiving, it will be the objective of this paper to show how perceptions of the Gaelic population of Ireland and the Finns were overwritten by a desire to uphold the picture of a less developed society in order to legitimize their subordination under English and Swedish rule. It shall be shown how two different approaches to assimilate a foreign people under one crown led to similar results in regard to cultural alienation processes. To use Waldenfeld's terminology, how how the desire to uphold a differentiation that was overcome by the past created a memory of Gaelic, Irish, and Finns, and how it was eventually stronger than the will to embrace them as equals. The nature of this paper is a comparative one, therefore I shall dedicate the first part of my talk to discussing the differences of the two reference groups and trying to point uh, point towards certain intersections regarding the effects of the different policies. I shall then go on to work out the similarities between the English and the Swedish experience in order to show how this connects to a conformable perception of differences in early modern Europe. Due to the time restrictions of this presentation, I shall concentrate more heavily on explaining the Northern European issues because I presume that a certain knowledge of English-Irish relationship, the English-Irish relationship is implied with most people attending the Tudor and Stuart Island conference. So, differences. At first glance, 16th and 17th century uh, Ireland and Finland appear to have very little in common. There is not only the fact that they are geographically situated at completely different ends of the continent, they further confront each other in two of the most important parameters of identity formation of the early modern period, legal status and religious affiliation. Um, While Finns had officially been considered Swedes since the Middle Ages, complying with you solely, which uh, was, according to the Landslag, still the preferred classification of citizenship in 1634. Uh, so those born in Swede- on Swedish soil were Swedes. Uh, the situation in Ireland showed a fairly different picture. It was not until f- uh, 1542 that the Gaelic population of Ireland were considered subjects of the crown. Some scholars might argue that the Gaelic pop- people were not treated as English subjects even after that point in time. 
Henry VIII's 1540s policy of surrender and grant showed the first serious attempts to consolidate the Gaelic inhabitants of Ireland as English subjects by legal mechanisms. Even though the contexts are different, the endeavours of Anglicisation are very similar to what had been implemented in Sweden already since the 12th century. As was the case with English in the British Isles, bringing all people in the realm to use the Swedish language was also the key objective of the Swedish acculturation efforts. Since Swedish was the legal and official language of Finland, most Finns were forced to learn the language and even adopt a legal identity under a Swedish name. Thus, not only were the names of towns and places in Finland known by Swedish as well as Finnish designations, many of the inhabitants had to use additionally a Swedified version of their native names in legal contexts. Swedish efforts to centralize its administration and bind Finland, Finland even more tightly to the, north, to the motherland reads like a copy of the English policy for Ireland. Swedish officials were regularly appointed to posts in Finland and Finnish institutions were con- consciously aligned with their Swedish equivalents. This policy of imposing unity was based on the belief that the state was held together by common customs and laws, the same religion and the same language. Generally speaking, the distinction between Swedes and Finns was, from a legal point of view, more of a social issue than a cultural one. However, despite the legal equality of all Swedish subjects, the official records show a bias towards Finns of lower social rank, similar to that displayed towards regular foreigners. Those, quote, individuals characterized as Finns instead of, for instance, burghers, peasants or servants, in official records, were usually not members of the local burger community, unquote. Thus, the term Finne indicated the belonging to a socially inferior group and can be regarded as a way to create social distance between the Swedes and the Finns. Both in the English and in the Swedish case, distinct legal actions regarding Ireland and Finland show that legal actions which were supposed to override the differences between the respective groups turned out to do the exact opposite and only emphasized the perception of sociocultural differences. Um, the relationship between England and Ireland under the Tudor and Stuart monarchies is famously marked by the, 15, by the post-1540s religious divide between Catholicism and Protestantism, as introduced by the Reformation movement of the 16th century. This conflict went so far that the long-established contrastive pair of civil English and wild Irish was, re- was redeemed by that of followers of the true religion and papists by the 17th century. Religion had replaced culture as a primary marker of identity. Religious issues took a fundamentally different form regarding Sweden and Finland. The Swedish crown had promoted Lutheranism since the time of Gustav Vasa's accession to the throne in 1523. Because the majority of the Finnish territories followed the model of Swedish Protestantism, the situation is generally not comparable to the conflict between Catholicism and Protestantism in Ireland. However, there is to consider the Finnish border region to Russia. The region of Karelia, um, which went back and forth between Russia and Sweden for centuries, remained for the majority Russian Orthodox, which obviously posed a problem for the Swedish claim to the territories of Karelia. In in the case of Karelia, the Swedish authorities attempted to overlook the religious identity of the Karelians as different from their own and tried to perceive them as Finnish because of the similarities of their languages. If the Karelians had been classified on the grounds of their religion, the Swedes would have had to categorize the Karelians as Russians and therefore as enemies, which would have lost them the claim to Karelia. Uh, One might conclude with the Finnish scholar Erki Lehtinen that 
For this reason, Finnish was positively encouraged. It is a revealing comment on the then prevailing national attitudes that the efforts of the government proved utterly futile. The religious frontier between Lutheran Finns and Orthodox, Orthodox Karelians was far more important than linguistic affinity, which clearly failed to bring the native Karelian and Finnish immigrants together. We can see this as well in the English government's, though half-hearted, attempt to use the native Gaelic language to overcome religious identities by translating the Book of Common Prayer and other religious texts into Irish. This is a bold move on the side of the authorities since the use of the native language was in other contexts viewed as threatening. I think it is safe to say that at, a time, at that time religious identity was more important than the linguistic one in Ireland as well. Although the problems revolving around religious issues were fundamentally different in the two case studies, it can be stated that the creation of religious identities, again, pronounced the difference between the respective pairs because of the perception of their distinct cultural heritages. Um, as might have already become clear from the preceding examples from the legal and religious context, the similarities between the comparative pairs can be found at the level of cultural perception. For the second part of my paper, I shall examine the importance of language, geographical identity, and agriculture in regard to a common rhetoric of difference that was employed, by the, uh, employed to express a sense of cultural superiority by the respective monarchies. The native languages of Ireland and Finland are both fundamentally different from what was spoken by their respective monarchies. Although both England and Sweden were demanding the use of their languages in an official context, they could not uphold this dogma at any cost especially the devotion to Protestantism, opposed their acculturation efforts, con efforts considerably. The Reformation's demand for the use of the vernacular proved to be challenging. As Stephen Ellis has pointed out, Gaelic services were grudgingly authorized during the Edwardian Reformation, quote, where a convenient number understood no English, unquote. Half a century later, Fiennes Morrison shows that the struggle was still ongoing. The quote is on the slide. Some then wished the Bible to be translated into Irish because many of the people understood not English, but others thought better by education to make the English tongue vulgarly practiced because the unity of language is of great power to breed unity of affections, unquote. Swedish authorities had to ensure also that services were being held in Finnish, which in turn opened the doors for the Finnish-speaking population. One of the most prominent examples of a Finnish clergyman was Mikael Agricola, uh, the Bishop of Orbu, who produced the first publications in the Finnish language during the 16th century and became known as the father of literary Finland. Works like those of Agricola post, uh, caused further changes for the Swedish authorities. On the one hand, it strengthened the sense of Finnishness among the inhabitants of Finland and produced a more pronounced ethnic self-presentation as distinct from Swedishness. On the other hand, the Reformation gave Finnish a stronger position as a written language so that, for example, the great number of Finns living in Stockholm obtained their own assembly, which, in turn, singled them out as different from the Swedes again. Um, in the Irish case, religious conversion was never fully achieved. A Gaelic version of the common book of prayer did not take foot, and Protestant services remained mainly in English, partly even in Latin. Promotion of the Irish language would have run contrary to English policy for Ireland. Nevertheless, the Irish language remained in use among the Gaelic population, and among certain parts of the English of Ireland, uh, to maintain their cultural identity as distinct from Englishness. Although Swedish became the official language of Finland, it should be stated that many Swedish officials 
who worked in Finland tried to familiarize themselves with the Finnish language. This was paralleled by the acculturation process, sometimes described as Gaelicization, through which the English of Ireland acquainted themselves with the Gaelic language and culture in order to establish a relationship with the Gaelic society. This process was heavily criticized by, for example, Edmund Spencer. Again, on the slide. It uh, seems strange to me that the English should take more delight to speak that language than their own, whereas they should, methinks, rather take scorn to acquaint their tongues thereto, for it had, has been ever the use of the conqueror to despise the language of the conquered and to force him by all means to learn his, unquote. By the 17th century, the issue of understanding Finnish had become so pressing that in 1650, Riksrod, a member of the Privy Council, Bengtschütte asked Pebra, who was, the, uh, was the, at the time the governor of Finland, to order the professors, professors at Abu University to institute a dictionary for Finnish, of the Finnish language, which also included certain dialects of Finnish like Karelian, Sami, and Estonian. English officials did not go this far, but some, like William Herbert, uh, also suggest, suggested making use of the Irish language. Quote, there should be set before the people songs in the Irish language, which will encourage them to virtue and entice them to moderation and tranquility of spirit, unquote. Nevertheless, there is no proof that the Swedish central power tried to prevent the use of Finnish as a written language. Legislation only aimed to prioritize the Swedish language and enacted the clerks responsible for legal actions should always be Swedish men and never foreigners. This raises the question whether Swedish-speaking Finns counted as Swedes and could therefore obtain this office or if they fell into the category of foreigners in this case. In turn, the fact that Finlandsfödda, uh, which is a person born in Finland, uh, could be found among the social elite does not necessarily show that these men could also speak Finnish or that they shared the same cultural, cultural values as the Finnish-speaking population. Finnish was classified as of a lesser quality than Swedish, as Anders Boreos, assessor, of, assessor in the Council of War, uh, pointed out in his 1632 publication, A Short Survey or History of the Kingdom of Sweden. Again, the quote is on the slide. This comment, um, they, the Finns, have a peculiar language of their own, in, which, in the which are some singularities to be observed, namely that some letters they cannot pronounce as B, D, G, and that they want the letter F. Neither have they any word beginning with two consonants, and therefore, when they pronounce any such word in other languages, they leave out such letters, and thus for gratus, they pronounce gratus for space, pace, for dominus, tominus, for bonus, ponus, etc. This comment is reminiscent of the shibboleth applied in English-Irish context and famously highlighted by Shakespeare's Macmorris uttering, what is my nation? As well as in uh, Ben Johnson's Irish mask at court where S becomes S, uh, S becomes sh, TH becomes T, WH becomes PH, W becomes V, and J becomes Y. In Johnson's play, the four Irish footmen, Dennis, Donald, Dermot, and pa Patrick, not only present themselves as honest men, and not the, not the villainous white Irish, which almost sounds German, <laughs> but his majesty's good subjects, they also address King James as uh, Yemish, as in the Gaelic vocative of James. So, Seamus, yep, I'm um, almost... <laughs> Continuing on the topic of language, we are faced with the representation of a certain geographical identity that was built on the terminology uh, of a superior power in both cases, in both case studies. 
Just as Ireland is an English concept, ignoring the native designation of the country's heir, Finland is a Swedish concept derived from ancient Latin descriptions of the peoples living in in this territory, as can be found in Pliny and Tacitus. Right down to the present, Finland is called Suomi in the native language. There are further similarities between Ireland and Finland based on the creation of geographical identities. The following examples of perceptions of Finns are easily matched with their Irish counterparts. First of all, there was the general idea that it was very easy for mischievous Finns to find cover from persecution in Finland. Beyond the reach of the Swedish authorities, criminals could hide in the vast Finnish woodlands. In the Irish case, forests and woodlands are also described as the hiding places of the wild Irish. This perception is reiterating the picture of the Homo Sylvestris that haunted Europe since the early Middle Ages. Fines Morrison explains that this is based on the fact that the woods were the place safe from the law. Secondly, having been born in Finland worked as a denigrating element when compared to having been born in Sweden, just as having been born in Ireland was less representative. The Swedish terminological equivalent to Old English or English of Ireland is the term Finlandsfödda. It worked as a marker of geographical identity and was generally applied to anyone born on Finnish territory, which could be either people who had indeed Finnish ancestry or people who were of Swedish ancestry but were born in Finland. The Finnish historian Marco Lamberg offers an interesting conclusion in regard to the question of how Swedish society perceived a so-called Finlandsfödda. In answer to the question whether the Finnish-speaking and Finnish-born part of the population were perceived as Finns, therefore as a separate ethnic group, or as Swedes, meaning an equal group without distinct ethnic status, or maybe even as foreigners, and therefore as an unequal and possibly even unwanted part of the population, Lumberg states that to be born in Finland could could mean all of the above. Um, Lastly, I would like to mention the perception of agricultural traditions in Finland and Sweden. While the Gaelic population of Ireland was continuously rebuked for its persistence with pasture instead of tillage, the Finns were singled out by the Swedes for their practice of slash-and-burn cultivation, which was perceived as genuinely different from Swedish agricultural practices. This form of cultivation is a, quote, form of pioneer extensive farming in which patches of Kanaiba forest were cut and burned to create fertilized fields. It involved mobile populations and a dispersed pattern of settlement, unquote. The part of the Finnish population which practiced this cultivation was therefore called forest fins. While the Swedes perceived the forest fins clearly as different due to their specific form of living that entailed a nomadic-like lifestyle, just like the pasture-driven Irish practices, They also acknowledged their usefulness for the Swedish realm. Thus, great numbers of forest finns were relocated. Some were sent to Värmland, a border region in the northwest of the Swedish motherland, to improve the agriculture there. Since forest finns constituted a problem because they, quote, destroy the forest by setting tracts of wood on fire in order to sow in the ashes and who mischievously fell trees, unquote. Sending a number of them to the Swedish colonies in North America seemed to solve the two problems at once. Quote, the colonial population remained small and scattered along the waterways. While this may have differ- differed markedly for the Swedish colonists who came from rural villages, the forest winds were able to continue their burn-beating practices and increasingly protested and evaded colonial authorities. It has been suggested that the cultural elements they brought with them, such as the cultivation through burning, the use of the sauna, and shamanistic religious practices, led to greater affinities with their Indian neighbors than with Swedish colonial leaders. 
In any case, Finnish colonists were found in isolated settlements along waterways far from the colonial centers. Unquote. In terms of similarities, it has been made clear that language and connection to land by, to land by birth and agricultural habits were perceived as inferior to that of the respective political supremacy in both cases by classifying the Gaelic population of Ireland and the Finns as cultural, culturally distinct from Englishness or Swedishness, which in turn was exploited in the forms of legitimization strategies. To sum up, I have tried to show how different attempts to assimilate a foreign people under one crown led to similar results in regard to the creation of distinct cultural identities. Despite the existence of grave differences in legal status and religious affiliation, it could be shown that acculturation efforts of both England and Sweden had the effect of highlighting the differences between the two groups because they could not overcome the persisting perceptions of cultural differences. This was further highlighted through the examination of the similarities between the two comparative pairs. Pre-existing perceptions of language, geographical identity, and agriculture have equipped England and Sweden with a rhetoric of difference that stressed their own civility over that of the others. The inferior group's language was perceived as incomprehensible and therefore of a lesser quality. By evoking shibboleths, Englishmen and Swedes were able to promote the idea of their neighbors' incivility. Furthermore, the prerogative of ethnical self-presentation was taken away, um, both from the Gaelic population and of Ireland and Finns alike by employing English and Swedish designations of their country and culture, as well as allowing the fact of having been born abroad to be perceived as de degrading to Englishness or Swedishness, respectively. Lastly, in terms of agricultural customs, the picture of the wild man and the semi-nobots evoked classical perceptions of the Gaelic population of Ireland and Finns as barbarians or sub-savages. In conclusion, it could be shown how the perceptions of two seemingly very different population groups at the European peripheries brought their respective dominant powers to produce a simi similar means to express the cultural difference between them. Thank you.